Hello there and welcome to our weekly podcast. It's a compilation of our best interviews from the last week. And so to this week, Sinead Crowther is the CEO of Soothing Solutions. Her idea became a product which was then snapped up, not just here, but across the water. Nola Regan joined me in the studio. His debut novel, Though the Bodies Fall, is set in the west of Ireland. Dr. Mark Rowe chats about forest bathing and enjoying the simple things in life. The annual Restival Festival takes place later in August. And on Friday's show, Emmett Cahill, from topping the Billboard charts in the US to performing at Carnegie Hall, the young Irish tenor, plays the National Concert Hall in September. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy. My guest this morning spent some 20 years working in pharmacies and during this time she had a brilliant idea. It took her a while to turn the idea into a product and get it on the shelves but when she finally did it was snapped up not just here but across the water. She's had some very good news of late and joins me this morning to tell us all about it. Sinead Crowther, CEO and founder of Soothing Solutions. You're very welcome. Good morning. Good morning Brendan. Thank you for having me. How are you? Really good. Really happy to be here. Now before you tell us your own story you're going to have to tell us about Tonstick's Tonsticks. There you go. Yeah. So anybody going to a pharmacy or a health food store has probably seen these on the shelves and you have a pack in with you now. So t- yeah. just explain to me what it is. So tonsticks, it's for your tonsils. It's mm. on a stick and it's a child-friendly throat lozenge. So basically I identify that there was nothing really suitable for children in, in the form of a lozenge. Like we grab a strepsil, but they're hard, glassy sweets that present a choke hazard for children. So I knew that I could develop something. I had an idea for a long time for a jelly melt-in-the-mouth soluble lozenge that would be suitable for children. So went about making that. Where did you come up with this idea? So I had the idea for years, and I used did to. You? Oh, yeah, I used to always joke <laughs> in the pharmacy. We were all talking about Dragon's Den, and one guy was talking about his dream was hammocks in airports. <laughs> Love it. I'm, not, I'm in. I'm and my in. idea was a jelly a lollipop. A sticks and a hammock together. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> I hope the GAA is listening to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, and my idea was je- a jelly lozenge, but in the form of a lollipop because I knew children would love that. And in the pharmacy, we always give out lollipops to kids when they were getting their antibiotics, but they were the hard candy ones full of sugar and, and the nasties. And I knew I, I had this idea I could come up with a jelly that would melt in the mouth. That was the unique thing that it would be child friendly. Yeah, because I, when I was reading about your story, I was like, really struck because I, I don't have kids but yeah those lozenges are really quite big and dangerous right yeah. so you would have been ner- nervous to give that to a, a toddler or a baby even yeah yeah and it even says in the pack not suitable for under fours and they taste disgusting and that's the whole problem with children anyone with children will know if it doesn't taste nice they're, you're just not going to get it in like they literally clamp their jaw shut like crocodile <laughs> yeah. and you're not going to get anything in there so Prize it has to taste yeah. nice yeah. exactly yeah. so how did you make it happen so um, my son had an accident in 2016 Okay. Um, and I took a year off work to help him recover, which he did. Thank God, he's brilliant now. It's a long time ago now. And during that time, I wasn't used to being off work full time. And I thought, you know, I have to stay home here now. And what could I do to help bring in an income? Because I was on full time like benefits then, because I walked away from the job to, to help bring in an income that I can stay home with the kids. And I just Googled, how do you make a product from scratch? I was thinking, well, now Did I'm you? off. Yeah, I literally, that's what I Googled. <laughs> that's amazing. I was thinking, now I'm off. Maybe I have time to look at this because yeah. it was the circumstances really that, that made me start. Right. OK. So but it was a bit delayed actually getting it off to the start. Life kind of got in the way. Is it safe to say? Yeah. Yeah. So I was separated with four kids and, you know, looking, trying to pay the mortgage and juggle everything. And all God, that you're some jazz. woman. Wow. How <laughs> well, old were the kids? So at that time, um, they would have been 14, nine, seven. Wow. Busy. And two. No, sorry, nine. 
11 and 14, whatever. Yeah, yeah. They're all close together. But still in school, busy, <laughs> it busy, busy. busy. Yeah. It was busy, yeah. But they're, they're really great kids. I'm really lucky. So um, that was that was the good part. They were the good part. Juggling the finances was the hard part. Of course, of course. So you, you have a brilliant idea, let's be honest. It's great. Thank you. And, and it's often the simplest ones that are the best and the most obvious. But then you do that really obvious thing of Googling, how do I make a product from scratch? So you, fill in the gap there. So you've got a busy house, you're under financial pressure and you're trying to make this product. Because you know the way you meet, you'll meet lots of people now who go, I have an idea. Yeah. Once people see that you have an idea, they want to share theirs, right? So exactly. Give us the steps. So it brought me to a website called um, Enterprise Ireland and it oh, said, yeah. do you have an idea or concept you want to explore? And there was just an application form. So I had no clue what Enterprise Ireland was. I worked in pharmacies. I, I actually had a number of jobs over the years. When my marriage broke down, I went to work in, in as a, a sales or a checkout on, in Tesco. So, um, so I filled in the form, sent it off and they rang me back a couple of days later and said, we have a programme for people with, like you with ideas and we help them flesh out those ideas. Do you want to come along? So that's how it started. I went along. And there's so many programmes for free that you can avail of if you fill in these forms. And there's local enterprise as well, isn't there? The local enterprise office. I went to them after this programme. So this programme was for six months and there's a phase one and I developed the concept a little bit more and then phase two is funded. You get 15k feasibility grant. So that was what I was living off with my benefits. And that carried me through the year. And then I just was so immersed in it and really enjoyed the development because I'd no background in product development. But I just really enjoyed it. And with everything, my son after his accident and my confidence was really knocked and, you know, worried so just, about everything. Just, just tell me a bit about that, because I, I feel there was a horizon moment where the sun shone again for you when, yeah. when it started to crack. But you had a couple of dark times, didn't you? When he had the accident, you weren't feeling great. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I suppose when you're on your own and the financial pressures, um, I was suffering from depression. I had had really post bad postnatal depression when my um, last son was born and he was two at that time and it didn't really clear up and then I suppose the personal circumstances where you are on your own now dads are in the lives um, so that was fine it's just on your own in the house yeah. um, it can be quite isolating and then you can financially can't go off with your friends and have the downtime people always talk about and you kind of get a bit lost in that and you're on your own quite a bit That is hard right? Yeah, yeah it is hard it is hard for anyone out there who's in that situation Um. I would just say, you know, take each day at a time. You will, you will get through it, but it doesn't feel like that when you're in the middle of it. You know? And you're, I, you know, I'm just really struck by you because you've four young kids. You have to be strong for them, so you have to go away and hide your pain a little bit, do you? Yeah, well, you dig deep. You dig deep. Um, you know, I tried to bring them off to the local parks because m- money was an issue. I'd be seeing how much diesel was in the car, and that was how far I could take them. And um, wow, because I had really? to keep the rest to get to work. Yeah, you're really living on that, you know, budget every week. Um, living on fumes, basically. Yeah. yeah. But we had like discos in our kitchen, and uh, I brought. I managed to bring them to Blackpool every year for a week. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, Good I used to you. say, like, you'd, you could book it online, which was affordable. You only needed a deposit and then I'd pay off every month and then do that for 12 months and we get there. And Tesco vouchers I used to use for the ferry. You'd get four times the value of the voucher off the ferry and you get really clever. You're going to be the best CEO <laughs> ever, aren't you? <laughs> well, the best person to manage a budget is a lone parent. <laughs> I would say 100%, 100%. You've, you, you touched on one of your sons having a, a serious accident yeah. in 2016. Yeah. So, so just when you thought it couldn't get any more. Yeah, I thought it was really, I difficult. thought it was bad enough. Yeah. Um, so my own confidence was really knocked from the relationships breaking down and being on your own. And I felt like I, you know, couldn't afford, I, they deserved more than I could give them. And I was really hard on myself. 
um, and saying I, I, I tried to hide it from the kids, but obviously I was I, I was snappy at times and there was pressure and one son was sick a lot, so I wasn't getting much sleep. Um, so when he had the accident, I was at work and similar to today where my youngest guy is with us. Uh, Char- oh yeah, what's his John- name? John. Hi, John. <laughs> Good as gold, good as gold. Not the norm somewhere for him. (laughs) Um, I couldn't get the childcare I was hoping for that day and I had to get two people in who, who weren't usually there, but I got two people in. And I had said to them, you know, he's only two, so he's at that stage where you need to follow him around and everything. Of course. And I went off to work and then literally they were taking up the dinner. Like they were, one went to get the strainer for the potatoes and the other uh, babysitter went to get, like set the table and he pulled the, boiling potatoes oh. over himself and he sustained really bad third degree burns to his leg. Oh no. Now I say thank God it was his leg. Yeah. You know, because um, it could have been so much worse but it was horrendous the pain of a burn and it's a two year old baby. Oh so it was actually the most horrific thing that has ever happened. Was that the low point? Um, there was a low point before that <laughs> where I, yeah, you know, things were really dark and I didn't think I was going to survive. I'll put it in that terms. Really? I, I thought it'd be better if I wasn't there. I thought the kids would be better off if I wasn't there. That's that's how depression works, you know, yeah. and it, it is a dark, lonely place. And I'm very lucky that I have the best friends because your family are there, right? But your friends see you most days and you can be the joker and mess around, but your friends can tell by your eyes yeah, how you're doing. And if you have one or two friends that's like a great that, you'll tip. be okay. They can tell by your eyes. Yeah. They can see you when you're sad. Yeah. That's so true. It is true. And they, they got me through. You have gorgeous energy, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, you really do. I'm really enjoying this because um, you are, you have, you're just a big ball of promise. <laughs> well, there, everything, you know, uh, hope for the best. Expect the worst, but hope for the best. That's my motto. <laughs> so you promised your little boy and yourself that things would change. So how, what did you do? So he developed sepsis, unfortunately, within uh, 24 hours of oh, the burn. So when your body sustains the burn, it's quite horrific. And he was so small, your immune system takes a bashing and he developed a sepsis. And um, we were about 10 days in the hospital and the, they couldn't give any more antibiotics for the sepsis wasn't responding. And it was really scary. And it was the night before my 40th birthday. And I was thinking, oh, God, this this is what I've done, you know, and this is where I brought us. And I just took his little hand and I said, you know, please stay with us please don't leave us and I'll promise you and your brothers I'm going to do better. I promise you. And then the next morning, for some reason, the antibiotics just seemed to kick in all at once and he, he started to come around and his all his um, vital signs and everything, his, his kidney and liver function started improving again. So it was really was a miracle and I thought, you know what, I have to do better for these kids. Um I, you sound like you've done amazingly, just to say. So, Thank you. so there obviously is a kind of a natural way that we beat ourselves up for all Absolutely. the problems around us, which is it's not the, it's not the truth, right? It's not the truth, but you do take it on board. And depression is, it's a it's it's a mental illness. Like if you have a heart disease, that's a heart illness of the heart, and you can't really get better on your own. You know, there's a there's a there's a a thing in your brain that makes serotonin. That's their happy chemical. We all know that. And when you're depressed, you do not make that. Right, yeah. You know, so you can't replace this yourself. Like if you have an so underactive... It's a, cunning, it's a cunning illness, isn't it's it? It's a cunning illness, but you, you're the last one to know you're sick. Wow, wow. People around you can tell you're not yourself and you lose your motivation, but you don't know you're sick. You just think you're useless. So so how you promised him he turns a corner. That obviously lifted your spirits and you thought there's a greater force at work here yes, that yeah. I need to get on board with this now. So yeah. and what actually 
helped you with the depression? Did you take medication? So I had, I had start, I started, I went to my GP um, when he got out. So we were nearly a month in the hospital and he had got skin grafts. They were really successful. And then you have to go and to the, to the Burns unit, which is surreal and see plastic surgery team all the time for the, to manage that wound management. Um, thank God for my pharmacy background because I wasn't phased by the wound management. I, I understood it, which made it, I don't mean easier, but I didn't panic yeah. you know, a lot of the time. Um, and so, um, the, when, when we got out of the hospital then, yeah, I um, went to the GP and said, I think I'm ready for the antidepressants. Great. But he had offered them before. And I thought, but I don't need antidepressants. What are you talking about? I'm yeah, just stressed. Sti- <laughs> there, is a, there is a stigma because, but they work. Oh they're, my gosh. Within 10 days, that negative, uh, so for me, it's nighttime mainly because you can be distracted in the day. It's that, that critical voice in your head at night just switched off. Wow. And then my son was getting better and I started just to feel better. Yeah. And then I went to see a counsellor for two years. Yeah. Because you've a lot of work to do. Best thing ever. It was, I, and that combination, honestly. Advocate for counselling, best yeah. thing ever. And the, good, the right counsellor. She yeah. was a brilliant counsellor and she just presented things to me in a way where I couldn't possibly be to blame for everything that had gone on. I played a part. Obviously, everyone plays their own part in it, but then I had to start forgiving myself, you know. And it, it, as this is happening and you're you're... Picking yourself up, basically, yeah. mentally and physically in some ways, yeah. uh, you start to invent this product, right? This yeah. starts to come out of the traps. It starts to come to life. So, so Enterprise Ireland is just the best um, organisation in the world, I would say, for nurturing young businesses and young and ideas. So there was a number of people on the programme. There's 15 spots and it's run all over the country. It's in universities. So you just fill in a form. It's literally that simple. And I didn't think I had any business acumen or I would be good at this. And I just loved every single module. So they bring a consultant in and they they give you a a day's worth of, you know, um, a workshop. Yeah. And then you take that away and you can close your notepad and leave it and nothing will happen. But I would pursue everything they said. Yeah. And then I would send, I I joined LinkedIn. I didn't even know what LinkedIn was. (laughs) And then I'd email CEOs of companies not really understanding the CEO. (laughs) <laughs> no business background and they'd answer and they'd say that's really interesting yeah I'll, I'll talk to you and, and share my knowledge see can I help and then every time someone would agree to meet me it was putting my pieces back together confidence wise yeah. it was amazing it's building blocks yeah. and Enterprise Ireland facilitated that and facilitated put, you, put, you, put you on the road to that yeah, yeah. and the, the local Leo did because when I finished with the Enterprise Office Leo being local area enterprise yeah, yeah. yeah local Enterprise o- Office yeah. so I was in Meads and I finished the um, which is often a good first point isn't it for people yeah yeah, because they do um, one or two day start your own business courses just to give you a feel for it, to see is it for you. And lots of people go and they, they think it's not for them, but you can come back to it. Yeah. And you, like people think when you're starting your business, you have to walk away from your job and that's it. 100 hours a week is going into this, but you can do it piecemeal until you figure it out and still maintain a job part time even you know yeah. there's lots of ways to do it so with the four boys it's working really well for you isn't it because you're you're the boss I'm the boss now <laughs> I am and I brought I brought in a co-founder I met Denise on New Frontiers she had a tea company I know New Frontiers as well yeah, they're speaking she, my language Go yeah, on. She's, yeah. She's, she was scaling her tea company up and we just gelled she had four kids as well and uh, we just had a laugh together and so we went our separate ways and kept in touch. And then three years later, she was at a crossroad with her business. And I had just won what's called Competitive Start Fund, where Enterprise Ireland Match invested fund. 50k. Wow. So it was my third attempt. I don't give up easy. I don't go away. Yeah. <laughs> because this 50k meant I could take this to the next level. And honestly, 
I really wanted to see how far I could go with it. The best quote I ever heard about working through what you're just describing is, if it was easy, everyone would do it. Yeah, yeah. It ain't easy, right? Yeah. But some people would say, oh, they don't understand. I'm going to give up. But I was like, how do I make this proposition better that they'll give me this money? Because I can't do, I had no money in the bank, you know, Um, credit union loan to finance the car breaking down, you know. Yeah. So, um, so we met and I said to her, I've won this competitive star fund and I'd pharmacy chains lined up to buy the product then, even though it wasn't still finished. It was just a little prototype. It was my jelly on the stick. And it sounds ridiculous, jelly on a stick, but it solves Listen, this massive problem. Listen, I just got a text problem. here. Love ton sticks. Use them on a flight to Boston last October for my daughter. Such a fab idea and the flight was much easier. And delighted to hear you're growing so much. Well done tonight. So oh, people wow. are loving the product. Yeah, it's effective. It's child friendly. It tastes good. It's strawberry or apple. We, we made it with honey because honey is the best thing for a throat. So I knew honey is the, the time-honoured traditional remedy for a throat and I needed to get this for children to take it. But some children don't like honey. So mm. I added kind of strawberry or apple and then getting it on this stick shape because it's the shape of a person was really complex. Really? Took years, literally years. And then sure COVID happened in the middle and then Denise joined and she gave up her tea business and joined me. And then we engineered the manufacturing process from our kitchen table over Zoom with engineers. Wow. They were in like, uh, some were in Brussels, some were in the UK and consultants here in Chagas and we figured it out together. And wow. now we, we built a production facility in Dundalk. So now we're mammies who manufacture. <laughs> I'm so impressed. We raised a few quid to do it and we convinced investors. We raised 1.2 million in funding. Now that's not an air bank account. Oh, just I to know. Be clear. Oh, I know how it works. It can go away just as quick as it can come in. Oh no, no, no! I really do know how it works. You don't want to hear my story. I'll have you crying? Oh, but no. um, it's it's a genius product. That's, Thank you very much. And, and I think is that at the core of your belief that you knew you had a good idea. So I'm a helper in pharmacy. I loved helping people across the counter, and I knew this there was a need for this, and that so many children would benefit for this from this if I was able to pull it off. And as a parent. You feel like you're never doing enough when they're sick. And I thought, this is something a parent can offer. Straight away. And it's going to give their children comfort for a number of reasons. The shape is fun. It tastes nice. It will soothe their throat. And it's something you can offer where there's nothing for them. And that would make the parent feel better because when your child's happy, you're happy. And I knew if I could put it off for all those reasons, it'd be worthwhile doing. And it is actually soothing as well yeah. as a process, right? Yeah, because children love, um, you know, uh, soothers and things like that. So it's comforting anyway, just by would, using it. Are you an inventive person? I would have said no, but I, before I started this, but looking back over the years, I would be like, I loved art as a child and I was a dancer. And um, So you're, you, you do think outside of the box a little bit. Yeah, I'm a problem solver. Right. And that played, you know, into my situation as a lone parent really well. I yeah. think that's what got me through. I, I don't, say I can't I say how can I right right I'm not a can't person right this is the problem but how can you solve it because yeah. you can always more or less solve the problem and you even you took the decision to solve your own mental health issues yeah, yeah. and that's brave but it took that to happen to my son yeah you know um, to take I wish you I'd there. done it sooner I would say to anyone go sooner there is li- and this is why I'm talking go about it now there's nothing sooner. to be ashamed of like yeah. I worked in pharmacy and was dispensing these meds to people and giving them counselling saying it's like any you know if you had an underactive thyroid you take thyroxine yeah. you know you have serotonin issue you have clinical depression this is going to help that and isn't it interesting that even with your knowledge mm-hmm. there was a shame but for me no it wasn't for me I couldn't I was just useless this is depression telling you you're useless you don't even know you're ill that's, that's the thing so if your family around you are telling you maybe you're not yourself just trust them. 
and go and go and have that chat with a doctor. And even I can remember a stigma around counselling and therapy yeah. and people be kind of ashamed to say it. But when you experience the benefits of it, you become evangelical about it, don't you? Oh, my God. And you see, that's the thing. And you don't want to sound like a, a bit of a nut. <laughs> but my counsellor, I used to look forward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I used to look forward to going to the air. It was the highlight of the week. Oh, because yeah. even though I might sob and get it all, get it all out. I, it, the relief after someone understood. It's, it's like a weight, isn't it? Yeah. Now, um, there's more gorgeous texts coming in. People are absolutely loving you. It's an amazing story. Fair play to her. Enjoying the interview. She's a wonderful, enlightening person from Colette and Rathdowney. Now, full circle here. Yeah. You ended up coming through pharmacy inspired by your work there. But you started, and I, I always, because I think sometimes people don't take transition year seriously enough and just kind of ring around their mates mm-hmm. to get the kids into something for two weeks. I, I'm, I'm really slightly envious that my nieces and nephews got to do transition year to explore what they might love. And transition year for you is where it all started, isn't it? Yeah, it completely transformed everything, you know, because I'm, I'm from Finglas and, you know, when I went to secondary school, it was it was the local tech. It wasn't the convent school. And I was really quiet and shy. And I suppose if you were smart, you were nearly bullied at that time. I'm not saying that's the case now, but yeah. y- you hid your intelligence um, because you were a nerd and you, no one wants that. And so the transition year teacher put me into a local pharmacy um, up in O'Devony Gardens. And that woman was the best mentor. I knew I wanted to do something in healthcare because I was always interested in science. Um, but again, even from a young age, I, I knew I couldn't be a doctor. I wasn't smart enough to be a doctor or anything like that. Oh. But oh, went into oh, the I think far- you could be a surgeon. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not with my memory now at this age. Jesus, that's a whole other story. Um, but they put me into this pharmacy and she spent, it wasn't a busy pharmacy. So she had all the time in the world to mentor me. And I really think that's what turned it around for me. It was the mentorship. And I just, I took to it really well, but I'm putting that down to her. And how old were you? 15. 15. How long did you work with her? I worked with her until I was 19. So I continued to do weekends. Oh, wow. Did you? And then I went on to do all the other things. So I did, you know, I was a dancer and then I worked uh, in the pub and then I got a job during my technician's course. I went on to do pharmaceutical technician course in Trinity. And then that was six months full time in a pharmacy. But I still stay with her at the weekend. Right. OK. She nice. was such a lovely woman. Honestly, she was great to everyone in the area. Uh, it, my pharmacist, my mother's pharmacist has been so, I mean, I, I meet them all the time and I'm just so grateful to them for the support, the pharmacies. I think they're the kind of slightly unsung heroes sometimes, pharmacists. The mum would go in there and have a chat for an, an hour. Yeah. She'd have a seat and while they're dispensing her medication, have a chat. The pharmacy is really important. And was that caring aspect attracted you to it? Yeah. Really? It really was because my mum had asthma when I was a young child and she was carted off in the ambulance often. And I just used to be fascinated that, you know, her inhalers would help relieve it or the oxygen would help relieve it or why did those tablets, you know, help her breathe and things like that. And I was always interested in that. Um, so, yeah, I think I was just always curious about that type of thing. Tell us about the business now. Where are we at? What's going on? So the business now, we launched in May last year. With oh, only, oh, that's only that recently. Yeah. Oh yeah. wow! I I had I I recognise it. Oh my god! Thank you for yeah, saying that. Like, that makes my day. Yeah. Um, but I mean, in the background, we were talking to pharmacies for a long time, and they it was like I always called it my field of dreams. The buyer <laughs> used to say to me, "If you build it, we will come. We will stock it." Um, but they did, and I suppose that's a testament to the quality of the product and the standard we set for producing it because it's for children. Yeah. You know, the bar is there, and we we go way above the bar for because it's for children. Um, yeah. Almost 1,400 pharmacies has listed it over the past 15 months. Um, and we have really big news, if it's okay to share that. Oh, please, please, please. Big news coming in. Uh, Boots UK approached us a couple of months ago and they are now launching it in stores today. 
Oh, congratulations! So thank you across the UK and boots. So it's well a pretty done. big deal because they usually would try That's any products huge, isn't it? huge in about a hundred stores, and they're rolling tonsticks out into five hundred and eighteen stores. So that's our sore throat and pop, a cough pop tonsticks original. So we're thrilled. We're going to go over it next week to check it out on shelves. We're in all the main uh, boots like Piccadilly Circus, Kensington, <laughs> Oxford Street. I still can't believe it. Like I still say to Denise, we've taken it too far. You know, this is serious <laughs> now, and uh, we're loving everything. So, are you on Instagram? Yes. Uh, what's your Instagram? Because I'm going to follow your your Thank your tour you so of the UK much. next. Like. Um, at Tonsticks Pops. And you're going to go in and see the product on the shelf, on the in, the shelf in the UK. And I have to say, the boots buyers in Ireland and the UK have been super supportive. Well, it's brilliant. It's a Thank brilliant. It's, it's a no-brainer, I, th- I think. But tell me this, it's global domination now. What, where's next? Global domination. Well, we've just launched our travel pop, so Tonstick's travel pop. So I kind of knew developing it, the cough and sore throat and would be seasonal winter and Enterprise Ireland were saying you need something all year round. So how do you wreak a moment on a flight with a child screaming? And just woman just texted yeah. in saying how good it was for the flight. So yeah. this, was, this was the next phase. So we've just completed Tonstick's Travel Pop. I have that one here with me now. So we've added ginger and LTA into this one to help calm and soothe during the flight. There's a really cute little passport in it for the little one. So you know you're never going to give your own child their own passport. No. Jesus, <clears throat> imagine losing that. <laughs> so we put this one so they can be a part of the journey and just again that suck in action while during takeoff and landing can help relieve air popping pressure if you can get them to suck the pop but it's so air pop facilitates that because it's so nice. It's yeah. orange flavour this one. And I need some of them myself. Yeah, the second big bit of news we had was the dream partner for this would be someone in the travel retailers of the world and WH Smith are launching this in all Ireland airports next week. Wow. That's just incredible. It is incredible. And then the the next plan for this one. And you're so humble and well, sweet. Well, look, I still can't believe it. I can't believe it. We're just enjoying it. And oh, yeah. it makes me really happy. You and deserve it. You really you. do. You deserve it. You deserve it. Uh, you manufacture in various places, but can I ask how many people do you employ right now? So there's seven. There's, uh, so myself and Denise obviously are employed by the company and then we have four, like a core team of four who manage the production, a production manager and the other uh, production operatives and then three part-time staff. But due to the WH Smith and Boots UK, we will be adding to the team we're interviewing right now for production operatives. Brilliant. It's very exciting and I'm thrilled. We've incorporated the four day week so people can have that have extra you? day for their families because for me, childcare <laughs> Listen, today was a, pre- was a pressure and if we can remove one day of that pressure for people, that's really important to us. Until we have free childcare, we will not have equality in the workplace. No, no, it's very hard. And, Definitely. and do you encourage people to bring their kids to work if they want to? Well, because it's a production line, yeah, it's, it's safety, safe. yeah. so we can't. And so in that regard, we can't and we can't work from home, obviously. Yeah. So that's why we felt the four day week would be something to offer to give back to employees that's as much as we could do in that front because it's a hands-on job Now I know you're in the middle of it and you've you've had a spurt of growth obviously right you just shot up like a teenager (laughs) you're going into your adolescence Great (laughs) What do you have a five-year ten-year plan for this? Absolutely so we'd like to add more chains to the UK and then obviously the travel pop we're, we're hoping to go into the WH Smiths around the EU airports and then um, UK and then North America for that. Um, and then we will be adding... Don't forget a, us, will you? We will be adding another... Um, oh Jesus, I hope WH Smith are okay with this. We have to see how it goes in <laughs> yeah. Ireland first, but I'm confident, quietly confident, because yeah. I know it works. Um, and then I suppose the dream would be to exit and get all their investors' money back and have a nice little lump sum in the bank. And then my dream would be to help other startups. Oh, wow. You'd yeah. be amazing. You'd be a brilliant But all mentor. the knowledge you, you amass, um, you'd have so much to share. 
You really do, don't you? I've got just loads of texts. Can I read you a few? Thank what you. a woman. Inspirational. Onwards and upwards. Another text. Alex says, lovely to hear this lady story. Congratulations on her success. Enterprise Ireland are fantastic. And then uh, quite a long text, but it's an important one. This woman is fantastic and inspiration. I'm a single father myself and suffered very badly with depression when my daughter was younger. And I know how difficult it can be to be happy and content. Constantly aware that I had to protect my daughter from being affected by my illness. Very difficult to be constantly be happy and battling depression and even more so to raise the game for your kids. She's an amazing amazing woman to have got through what she did and come out the far end sounding so great and being so positive and successful not to mention our business she's wonderful thank you thank you so much Isn't I'm that... a little overwhelmed when I hear that but thank you for that so we are going to watch out for Ton Sticks for sure and I'm, I'm really fascinated by the story because a lovely piece of advice I got once years ago which always stayed in my head is do one thing and do it really well and that's what you've cracked haven't you yeah so I think sometimes businesses have an idea and then they add all the bells and whistles and then it gets too big and then it gets too complicated and then they can't make the progress because they're not focused on the original goal. So how I imagined this in my head is exactly how it turned out because I wouldn't move away from that and I just kept working towards that. People said along the way, oh, don't add the stick, just have it as a jelly lozenge. But then that wouldn't make it child friendly. And I just really pushed hard for for what I believed the end product should be and, and focused on it. So, yeah, one thing at a time, laser focus. Sinead Crowther, CEO and co-founder of Soothing Solutions and maker of Tonsticks. I really look forward to watching your global domination. It's really been a great chat. Thank you so much. You're an inspiration. Thank you so much, Brandon. And best of luck. Now, my guest this morning has written a novel that somehow manages to weave hope and beauty through the darkest places. When I read it, I found myself wrestling with some big questions about belonging, family, duty and what it means to really live. Though the Bodies Fall is written with such beautiful empathy and insight. And it's a real pleasure to have the author in our Cork studio, Nola Regan. Good morning. Morning, Brendan. Thank you for having me on. Delighted, delighted to have you. I love the book, but I want to flag for listeners that this book does deal with some difficult topics such Mm. as suicide. So just want to put that out there that it's quite a grown up read. So first of all, no, take me into it's our protagonist is, is Michal Burns. Take me into his world. What kind of life does he lead? Sure. I suppose it tells the story of Michal Burns, as you said, who lives alone on his family's land at the end of a headland in Kerry. And there, there are cliffs on the land that have been a draw for people who are struggling for years and years. Yeah. And so his parents before him took it upon themselves to help these people, the, the visitors, as they call them. Uh, to bring them back from the brink. And he also finds himself, he's the last member of his family left on the land, but he's continuing that duty even as his, his sisters look to sell the land. So I saw it described as ordinary people doing the extraordinary. And it's that extraordinary commitment that has the massive impact on the family. Is that correct? Indeed. And it kind of explores the ways in which inherited duty and responsibility can shape uh, characters as well. So like what it is to take on something like that, uh, such a huge responsibility. Oh, you just actually made me really think about that inherited duty, that sense of duty and that sense of guilt and that sense of commitment that can be based, uh, just handed down to one member of the family. That was a very interesting side to it, isn't it? Well, that's it. And it shapes their three siblings and it shapes each of them differently. You know, it, it is told from Michal's point of view, but um, his sisters, Anya and Saoirse, each respond to it in their own way, in very different ways. And um, my aim certainly was that you can, you feel compassion for each of them and each of the roads they take away from the headland. 
I've a quote here from the book. When she died, he grew to understand it, empathise even with the compulsion why she sacrificed. He's speaking about his mother there, obviously. And yes. he inherited what she did with the visitors is take them back from the brink. I mean, it's imp- it's a difficult book not to give too many spoilers away. So yeah. we care. We've got to tiptoe around this, right? That's it. I devoured the book. It's one of the three books that I slowed down reading because I didn't want to finish it. And there's a couple of scenes in the book which had my heart pounding. Like, it's it's really good read. So congratulations. I, I Thanks, thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. That's very kind. But while I was reading, I, I felt really connected to the landscape and the folklore storytelling of the region. It's clearly really had a big influence on your work. It has. Um I suppose like a lot of my favourite writers would be kind of writers of place, like the likes of Annie Prue and Tim Robinson, who writes so beautifully about Connemara and the Aran Islands. And I guess with my own writing, I'm, I'm trying to do something similar to kind of dig down into place and explore the layers of story that can be found there. And I, I think the different meanings that can be put upon place as well. All that's very fascinating to me. We are untethered from the landscape in modern times, but it shapes us. Another quote. Michal is slightly embarrassed to a degree where he's from because he has a deeper understanding of it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think he, he kind of struggles to feel like he belongs. And I think he, he does, he kind of digs into local history and things like that when he returns home in a bid to to ground himself in the place and, and to feel like he belongs Um he says, he says yeah. about the visitors as well, they tell the stories in a way I can't. So they, he, they give him kind of a deeper understanding of himself as well. It is. And it, I think it's about connection, trying to find connection with a place, but also with other people and, and how difficult that can be at times, you know, to, to reach across and to bridge that gulf. And he goes off to college and he meets the lovely Nadine and she's mm. a city dweller and she comes to visit. And then he starts to see the place through an outsider's eyes and you get and so that that's kind of just to point out that there's this lovely drama within the relationship that unfolds in, in a in a brilliant way I'm not going to say anything else <laughs> but it's very interesting all of a sudden and it's kind of like when somebody comes into your own family and you, you, they're like no they're really nice or no relax they're not that annoying they're actually sound <laughs> or so he, he really responds well to an outsider and I thought you, you, you the nuance of that was really clever and good Thanks, Brendan. Yeah, like I, I think it, it defamiliarizes you, doesn't it? And it, it, it's with people, it's with your family and, and with the place you come from, kind of seeing it with different eyes. And everyone has a, a subjective view of places. And, you know, it's about like where Michal lives and where I'm from. Like, it, it's a gorgeous place and I'm, I feel very lucky to be from there. But, you know, it's about kind of reaching under that sort of postcard beauty as well and, and getting at. Um, some some reality, reality as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, when uh, when you go down to any of the cliffs and you see some of the signs, you get there. You're as a dub, you're always really kind of shocked. Now, mm. uh, it wasn't the landscape as such that inspired you to start writing, though, was it? I believe you spent time away from home, and that got you hooked on writing. Yeah, like I mean, I'm I'm from a sports mad family, is how you'd put it. So, like, certainly growing up, it was you know I didn't want to. Writing wasn't on my mind for a while. It was, you know, wanting to be the next like Morris Fitzgerald or, or Roy Keane or I don't know Tiger Woods, something like that. And um, like many young men, yeah. exactly, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and uh, I really enjoyed all those things. Um, but I remember I went abroad with my parents for the first time when I was thirteen or fourteen. Yeah. We we just went to this caravan park in France for two weeks, and I think it was the first time. I was ever away from, you know, my usual sporting outlets and, and my Nintendo. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I remember bringing two books and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll read one a week. It'll be grand. And 
literally I read the two of them in a day and a half I think it was and I stole my mother's books read them stole my father's books read them in in 12 days I think I read seven books and it just was that first feeling of that kind of immersive magic that reading can give you which you know like is amazing and I kind of I think I came home from that holiday even then like only 13 14 and was like okay this is what I, I want to figure out how you can do this and something clicked in you very much so yeah yeah and I've been kind of chasing it ever since and uh, <laughs> 20 years later here we are with my first book <laughs> uh, you're still only a young fella you're grand that's it <laughs> <laughs> so we get a little nod to the sport obsession as, mm. as Michal, for Michal he's a keen hurler but in some ways this makes him more of an outsider doesn't it it does obviously in Kerry <laughs> uh, football is is the main sport by by a country mile so when he he goes to school in Tralee so obviously going in with a hurley is is seen as almost a foreign thing and um it does it, it's something that kind of pushes him apart in in town i mean i will say where where he lives like bally high ground there there is a sliver of land where where hurling dominates and carry but <laughs> a sliver it, it is a sliver sliver of a slitter yeah. it is and it, they're they're brilliant um but it it is certainly in school in in the town rather than in the country. It um it does push him apart. Will people in the local area because I know you had your launch last Wednesday. Mm. Will people in the local recognise many parts of your writing, uh, uh, metaphorically and physically? Do you think? Mm. I hope so. I mean that that was certainly an intention of mine was to. Were you nervous about that? That's what I was wondering. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, like I do, like I do have a deep fondness for the space, and I think like one of the main aims of mine was to capture it and capture it in a way that felt mm-hmm. uh, true and accurate to the lived experience at home in, in Kerry. It, so yeah, you you do worry and you do wonder how it's going to be received. Now, as, a, as someone from Dublin, and I love that part of the world where you mm. write about, and even though there is a bleakness to it. Um, I really want to go there. <laughs> like you, you still don't worry. You paint a beautiful picture. Um, Thank you. So take me back to your teenage years. You decide that writing is the dream, and you're going to run with it. Yes. yes. Was that a confidence thing or determination thing, or where did that come from? It was a deeply naive thing. <laughs> <laughs> so you're chasing your dream. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea whatsoever what that would entail, um, other than just look reading as much as I could and, and starting to write a few short stories. I wrote my first novel when I was, I think, seventeen. Right. Um, which was, it was, it was deeply terrible, but <laughs> it's, you know, like you... Yeah, but you still wrote a novel at 17. I, I did, mean, that's impressive. I did. Yeah, no. I did. And it's, look, you, you look, looking back on it, of course, they're all necessary steps on the journey to it. And it, it wasn't so much a fail novel as, as a practice novel is, oh. is how I learned to look at it. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Um, your parents, obviously, wonderful support. Mm. Uh, you, you have a quote here from an, uh, an article you, you did saying, they could have told me to become an accountant after a career counsellor told you you were good at maths. Yeah. <laughs> but they didn't, did they? Never, not once. No, they've been so encouraging all the way. And um, I'm very lucky. Look, they've just been fantastic. So you've a, you've a couple of set, brilliant belter quotes. Uh, your dad said, you've only failed when you give up. <laughs> That's it. Brilliant, and isn't it? It is. It is, honestly. And um, it's definitely definitely helped me persevere, which is which is the key for any writer out there, I think. 
So you you write your first novel at seventeen. You start, uh, and I'm actually thinking my my niece is fifteen and mm. she's prolific reader uh, hmm. it's amazing and I know she wants to be a crime writer and I just I'm, I'm, li- I'm listening to your journey and I'm actually projecting onto her in a way so you were very fortunate though when you went to UCC hmm. you came into contact with the brilliant writer Claire Keegan how did that happen? Yeah I was and, and that was definitely a key turning point for me um, she was writer in residence in UCC while I was an undergraduate so I had a year and a half of workshops with her and there was a group of us in there it was it was invaluable, honestly. I mean, at that point, this is going back a while. So she, I think, she only had one book out at that point. Mm-hmm. But it was Just clear people, even people then. People know her. She wrote uh, Foster, which inspired the film on Colleen Kuhn. Exactly. And and small things like these, another one of her books. So she yeah. she's yeah she's amazing, isn't she, she? Oh, she's a genius, and and you got a sense of that at the time. I Did mean, you really? I, yeah, very much so. Like I, <laughs> again, kind of that that naivety of of just learning the trade and and um, I still remember the shock of like the first few stories she edited and just the, the sea of red <laughs> across the page. <laughs> Must try know, harder. <laughs> well, no, you know, it, it can be tough to, to see and tough to take at first, but then you realise that she's bringing the same intensity of vision to your work than that she does to her own. And so you kind of get to see where you have to try and reach to or like somewhere close to it anyway. And uh, that's, that was invaluable and, and I learned so much from her so it was it was a key uh, turning point for me She gave you one key piece of advice which I, you have on a post-it which I'm going to take actually it's brilliant Yeah, yeah it's perseverance is key Yeah, brilliant yeah. absolutely brilliant Did you ever experience burnout in pursuit of your dream to be a writer? Mm, I, I think so Yeah, there was it was <laughs> It's been there've been a lot of peaks and, and troughs to it. Like I, I was doing quite well, say ten years ago. I was fortunate enough that like I was having a lot of short stories published. I'd, I'd won a couple of awards. I, I even got a residency. So you know there was a time there where I was being paid to to actually be a writer. Even amazing, yeah. Even though there was definitely a sense of imposter syndrome to the whole thing. Was but there? There was. There definitely was. And um, I remember after that, then I, I had enough money to kind of give myself six months to write and I was like okay now like I've, I've ticked all the boxes now is the time to sit down get the novel done and so I rented the, <laughs> I rented this uh, cottage out on, near Banna in Kerry the first week of January freezing cold okay. <laughs> it turns out there's a reason why no one rents uh, holiday homes the first week of January oh. I, I just I, I froze basically <laughs> really? I, I managed to stay out there for about two weeks and I had to come back it was just it was too cold and and the novel idea I was working on at, at that time it just it just never coalesced and, and I, I did get a bit I felt like I, I'd lost pretty much all my momentum and, and I got quite disillusioned I went back I I'd lived in London before that. I went back to London for a time, but not really sure what to do. Like I, I, I've worked as an editor, but I didn't feel like that was right at that point. So I went teaching and, and that didn't work. So that was definitely a low point. Yeah. So so you worked as an editor. Tell me about that. I mean, because it seems that you have injected writing and editing and publishing. It's into your DNA now. So you, mm. you've created that. It's almost like you did like the world's hardest PhD to get here. <laughs> That's it. So t- you were an editor for a while. Yeah, working in yeah. a publishing house. That's did, it. Did that uh, was that, that helpful? Maybe. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, like I, I do believe that to be a good writer, you do also need to be a, a good editor, like of your work. But like it also helps to edit other people's work, just to learn. You learn an awful lot about things like structure, and you see a lot of the same mistakes repeat, and and so you begin to see ways in which to to fix that. 
it definitely did help me. I, I will say that you are also drawing from the same creative well, I guess, in, in editing other people's work if you're, if you're editing a lot of manuscripts. So during those years where I was editing full time, um, my writing kind of fell to a trickle. Oh, really? It did. It did a little bit. But then, like, to balance that as well, like, you do feel a real kind of vicarious joy in, in, in helping other writers achieve their dreams, you know, and in, in being able to help bring their books up to their best selves and, and get them out into the world. And, th- and that was that was a thrill. And I suppose it gives you a deeper understanding of the whole process. Mm. And as you said, way to figure things out. But I love this quote. You said you felt like a bad spy. Figuring <laughs> it all out. That's a great quote. I definitely did at first. I was like, how, how do you actually get a book deal? Like, is there is there a formula? And it turns out there isn't other than just becoming, like working on your craft and working hard. So many people I know are writing at the moment hmm. and trying to write. And I'm holding your beautiful book with your stunning cover, by the way. Oh, it's a gorgeous cover. Actually, oh. Dublin illustrator Jack Smith, I believe it is. Yes, uh, yeah, fa- yeah. Just fantastic cover. Thrilled with it. No, it's stunning. What would be your like top three tips if somebody wants to get their book published or would you say do your first one self-published what, what would your tip be now on this side of on this side of your experience um, just to, to get a book done is it or to get it published I suppose to get it done yeah first yeah well like the key for me I find is if you can if you can even just cut 20 minutes out of your day 30 minutes an hour would be fantastic but honestly if you're just sitting down to the project every day if you're staying in the world of the project it really keeps it fresh in your head and you'd be surprised at how quickly something does build up of worse like it so that's key i think trying to stay in it because if you move away from it, it it can flatten in your mind and on the page i think that would be a key point read as much as you can i mean it's almost a cliche but and read widely too i would say you know don't just read all the same type of book listen i love the book i couldn't recommend it enough Thanks, 25 man. stars for me 100 <laughs> it's called though the body's fault it's out now is that correct it is yeah it's all good bookshops all good bookshops noel regan and the best luck with your next book Thanks, Brendan. Hopefully not another 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully not another 20 years. I'm sure we'll be hearing from you much sooner than that. Nola Regan, thanks so much for your time. It would seem there are more festivals in Ireland these days than there are days in the year each one bringing something different. And my guest this morning is keen to talk about the benefits of a relatively new one, which combats, I would say, what we say, festival fatigue, maybe. It's taking place in Waterford. Good morning, Dr. Mark Rowe. How are you? I'm wonderful, Brendan, and thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much for coming in. Now, this, I don't want to throw away this, the name of this festival because it's absolutely brilliant. It is. It, it's called Restival Festival. And, you know, it does what it says on the tin. You know, Restival, it's really an opportunity for people to learn how to embrace mindful presence in a natural environment. You know, I'm, I'm from Waterford. I'm very proud of the place I come from, Brendan. Yes. And the Mount Congreve Gardens. And that's the location for this that's festival. That's the location for the festival. It's a beautiful place. It's about 70 acres of magnolias and camellias and rhododendrons and lovely walks that have all been lovingly restored by... So let's get the maths out of the way. So the rest yeah. of the festival is an annual wellness event and it's third year is taking place just to say, so people know, and we don't forget to say it, Saturday the 19th to Sunday the 20th of August from 7am to 3pm in Mount Congreve Gardens, County Waterford. That's right. Yeah. That's so that, it. That, and there'll that's be a number of talks and there'll be different things going on, including forest therapy that I'll be so, so tell me, doing you, you just beautifully described the location. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. They've had a big makeover, seven million being put into it. A great investment. And I think one of the best investments we can do in Ireland is invest in 
our own communities, invest in our own natural resources and make good things even better. And because I'm going to move on to your your lifestyle type of, of, med, of, medic, of, of medical practice soon. But just so people get a sense of it's guided yoga, meditation, Pilates and, and it's adults only. Well, I think that's kind of self-evident in that the type of talks and the type of experiences that will be there that weekend really requires somebody that has a certain level of maturity. So I would think you would need to be 18 plus to be able to really, probably you need to be older, you probably need to be in your late 20s or 30s to be able to really embrace it and take it on, take it in. Now I know Mount Congreve is very family friendly and they have a lot of family friendly activities there. They have play areas specially designed for kids that I think will be open even on those days after those hours. So it is very much inclusive but I think for the rest of the festival itself, I think it is, I think yeah, Brendan in life you know, as we do mature, we do see things differently and we become more reflective and we do appreciate how important it is to recharge from stress. I completely agree. And I'm, I'm getting a sense that actually making it adults only is giving us a window to just, you know, do mm. self-care, self-love and, and not have to put other people's masks on. <laughs> you know, you know the, the, the famous line, put your own mask on first. So giving people space to really spend time with themselves as part of this festival. I see there's other people that people will, will recognise as well is Carl Henry, the TV presenter. He's going to do talks there. And Mary Kennedy, friend of the show. and a oh, uh, wonderful person. And as a runner as well, will be there. So there's lots going on over the weekend. Now, you describe yourself as a lifestyle GP. Instantly, I'm attracted to that notion. So tell people what that means. Well, I suppose, Brendan, you know, the oldest doctors really were philosophers. I mean, if you think back to Socrates, who said, know yourself and... You know, Hippocrates, getting back to your number of steps per day. And what I would say to you is every <laughs> single step counts. <laughs> and, you know, there's no just be good to yourself. And, you know, the more, the better. And Hippocrates also said, if you're in a bad mood, go for a walk. If you're still in a bad mood, go for another walk. So <laughs> these really old ideas that, you know, we can move upstream and we can look at how we can prevent many of these chronic health conditions like type 2 diabetes and heart disease. We now know that positive lifestyle changes can prevent perhaps up to 80% or more of, of cases of heart disease. And lifestyle medicine is really all about the six pillars, food as medicine, restorative sleep, exercise and movement, recharging from stress, avoiding obviously noxious substances and perhaps most importantly of all, building rich restorative relationships. The Harvard Study of Adult Development, a brilliant ongoing study since the 1930s, has shown that the Leading indicator of long-term well-being for us, Brendan, is the quality of our interpersonal relationships. Really? And particularly since COVID. You know, I think the real pandemic has been the pandemic of loneliness and disconnection and isolation that I've seen with so many people, not just yeah. our elderly, but, but young people as well, have never felt more disconnected in the world. Despite all the social media, they've never felt more isolated. Well, lifestyle medicine is this really new old idea of prevention better than cure, of, of less pills. Modern medicine can be fantastic. Of course, we need antibiotics for meningitis or pneumonia. Of course, we need blood thinners for, for clots and medicine can be fantastic, but it's not the only answer. And we need to bring in all of these other ideas for which there's a, a huge evidence base. I got the opportunity to go to Harvard in 2017 and was part of the first cohort to study in this new term called lifestyle medicine. And that led on to me going to uh, the first global happiness summit in Austin, Texas. I got an opportunity to go to Stanford, but now it's more widely available. Now there's many Irish doctors qualifying in lifestyle medicine. It's available in Britain. It's, it's a new global movement because increasingly people are, are recognising that we need 
more than simply the pill for every ill. We need to move beyond that. And as I say, rather than Brendan being simply a passive consumer of healthcare, become more of an active participant in your own well-being. You cycle to work this morning. Well, you're listening. That's, that's fantastic. Thank you're you. You're getting exercise. I'm very pleased. <laughs> exercise is medicine. Movement is medicine. It's, it's not about being perfect. It's not about a cookbook a list of things that you must do. We're all different. Back to Socrates, know yourself. Learn to know yourself well enough to know what suits you best. And but this is in conjunction with medicine as well. Of course. Of course. Yeah, it's yeah. not either or. It's the best of both and. Very good. And you know, Brendan, you know, back in... 2009, I mean, you know, some of your listeners may not remember this, but there will be a lot that will. We had a terrible economic crash in Ireland and really there were so many people that were really struggling and were under huge um, financial distress at the time. And I was there as a GP, as were many of my colleagues around the country, trying to figure out how to help people. And more than pills or Prozac, people needed other solutions. And at the time, talk therapy, and I would say to anybody, Brendan, if you're struggling, go out and talk to somebody. And professional therapy can be fantastic. But that wasn't widely available in any way. You had to pay for it at the time. So I, I started to look back, you know, look back at the, at the, at the wisdom ideas from, that have gone before. Um, the benefits of keeping a written journal, how reframing your experiences. They call this post-traumatic growth. It, can, it doesn't magic things away, but it gives you an opportunity to develop a new sense of purpose, a new sense of meaning, a new sense of perspective. As to what's going on. Yeah. Looking at optimism. I mean, there's amazing research now that shows that if you can learn skills to become more optimistic. Yeah. You can reduce your risk of heart disease by about 35 percent. That's the Journal of the American Medical Association. And probably the reason I'm here this morning, getting out in the natural environment, getting out and spending time in nature. It's a wonderful way to recharge from stress, boost mood, motivation, resilience lower stress hormone levels and boost your vigour and vitality. You mentioned that you heard me talk about the blue zones yesterday, yeah. which is where they have <laughs> the highest density of people who live past 100. And I stumbled across that. I was in Icaria in Greece on a holiday and I was sitting having a coffee and a woman came down right to the edge of the sea to, to a bay, you know, so there's a wall. Mm. And she was in her 70s, very fit looking woman, but, you know, she got out of the driver's seat and then she took a woman who was easily 95 and put her in a wheelchair and then she came to the edge and she put these huge metre long flippers on the on the older woman and spilled her into the sea and she wow. took off like a mermaid into the sea. I was like, what's going on here? And then I discovered that it's the healthiest older people, oldest people in the world. And what you just said really stayed with me. The big part of that was community. Mm. At night when you're in the Mediterranean, you see old people out with younger mm. people enjoying the community. And, and do you think we've lost a sense of that? I think we have. I think Ireland was very much known for, you know, its village mentality and that sense of weeness and that sense of togetherness. And but I think awareness precedes change. So the fact that we're even talking about it this morning is 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 a new opportunity to become more aware of the importance to rebuild community. And that's the thing. As a country, we're only 100 years old. We can rebuild a better Ireland going forward. So nothing's ever static. Everything can change. So if you're doing your, you know, your 4,000 steps a day you don't need to do the 10,000 <laughs> and if you're you know sleeping well and you're you're managing your your nutrition I like to and I love what you said here you said uh, C- uh, Cicero's idea was we all need to become our doctors to ourselves yes uh, somebody said to me once when you're picking up food think of it like medicine think of it mm. like is this nourishing me is this good for me you know and it does make you change how you you know you you eat food even is really important doesn't it 
It really does. And you know what, Brendan? It's all about small positive changes. Too much of the messaging around food is don't eat this, don't eat that. Whereas I would really encourage people to be kinder to themselves, to be more self-compassionate. None of us are perfect. And to see what are the small, simple little ways you can take better care of yourself. Might be bringing more colour into your diet. Choosing to eat more berries, more fruit, more beetroot, So you literally more mean just more colourful. Yeah. Wow. Okay. They talk, they talk about this idea of eating a rainbow in colour every day. Within that rainbow of beetroot to red pepper might be 100,000 health boosting phytochemicals. These are sort of micronutrients that boost the microbiome in your gut that boost your health and well-being. So what are the small little ways you can take better care of yourself? And it's all about starting. Uh, loads of texts coming in about community and I, I think it really for me it triggers something as well my my mother was getting on and I felt she was being a bit she was a bit isolated even though she was in the house where we grew up it, it, she was kind of mm-hmm. on her own a lot we felt somebody texts in here uh, your lifestyle GP is correct I lost everyone except my son uh, a niece, cousin and one friend because of the pandemic I lost my ability to socialise mm-hmm. and work on establishing new connections I'm in my 50s like what would you is say it, to that person? I would say go and get some professional help. I would say loneliness is the most terrible poverty. Mother Teresa said that, but it's so, so true. Mm. And ironically, and that lady has articulated it so well, she recognises that she's lonely and disconnected, but it can be so hard to, to do something about it because they've shown through research, you develop this, what's called hypervigilance uh, to, to, to social threats. So you, you feel more nervous about being with people even though you are lonely so it's kind of paradoxical in a way but you know loneliness has a lot of really adverse health um, consequences long term you You can connection or lack thereof is such an issue Mm. I had my first and only baby during COVID the loneliness and isolation is the most devastating thing we've lost our villages and our support networks I know for me this texter says I have never felt lonelier in my life Uh our communities are smaller than they have ever been I I feel this from people a lot actually Mm, and I see it too as a doctor you know people of all ages that are really that are really struggling and it's Ironic that people in their 20s yeah. are experiencing loneliness, but they are. And what could, like, so what can we say to this, this texter here to start to, to reach out? I mean, sometimes I, I in my experience, what, what's worked for people is, is to maybe join a class, find something you're interested in, yeah. whether it's um, whether it's yoga or, or whether it's Zumba dancing or, you know, the men's sheds or the gardening. You know um, what, the men's so many are different fantastic, things. aren't they? Well, they're just a great example of possibility. Yeah. Uh, I think find something you're interested in. Try and get somebody who who will go with you. And, um, you know, it's it takes courage, I suppose, to kind of get out of that comfort zone. Yeah, I suppose. And stretch yourself Don't a bit. be afraid to, to put yourself first if mm. you are feeling like yeah. that and consider what your needs are. Mm. Now, are people surprised or, or delighted when they see that you're in the wellness space as a GP? How do they react to you? Well... I think it's a really natural part of being a doctor, to be quite honest. I mean, the World Health Organization said many years ago, health is not simply the absence of disease. It's a state of complete physical, mental and relational well-being. So it's the most natural thing in the world, as far as I'm concerned, for a medical doctor to be talking about health. And that's really what well-being is. It's an extension of health. And what I do notice from, you know, from the talks I gave or whatever is that 
people do like the fact that I'm a medical doctor and they value authenticity. People are very, very smart, Brendan, and people are people are really more interested in, well, what do you do yourself? Do you exercise well, yourself? they ask you. Yeah. Oh, what do you do? The, yeah. Because they're much more interested in what you do because really actions do speak louder than words. That's fascinating. And I it? find that absolutely fascinating. The opportunity uh, in healthcare, whether you're a doctor or whether you're a nurse, to lead by example. Wow. What do uh, you do? <laughs> well, I, I do lots of things. I mean, I, I, I play tennis and I do, I do strength training because strength, being strong is, is very important. My wife and I do yoga now. I love long walks, obviously in nature. Um, I mean, that Mount Congre became my creative laboratory, really, I suppose, dur- during lockdown. But what I did, and I'll just tell you this story, Brandon, is really interesting. Because of this idea of action speaking louder than words, I brought a dumbbell into my office about three <laughs> months ago and I have it under the desk. <laughs> Love it. And because it's just there as kind of a prop, just as a reminder and it does as spark many conversation. As are, yes. And let me tell you this conversation. This guy, obviously I won't mention his name, came in to me a couple of months ago. He, um, he came in for his, to have his driver's licence renewed. And as I was filling in the form, he saw the uh, dumbbell under the desk. He put one hand on the desk, lifted up the dumbbell and did a set of 15, counting them out loud. Put the dumbbell down. It was a 15 kg dumbbell. <laughs> OK. Yeah. The man is 83 years of age. Wow. And he said, great to see you getting into the weight stock. I've been doing them for years. <laughs> Couldn't on. recommend them highly enough. Yeah. And that was just brilliant. Yeah. And for me, that's lifestyle medicine in action. People taking ownership of their own health journey and making those changes that make things better. I, I know certainly from my own family, there's a fear of lifting weights mm. in my sisters who would be in their 50s now. What's that fear? How can we get people well, into the gym lifting weights? It's interesting. It's really good, isn't it? It, it? it is. It's massively good. I mean, I was reading recently about this woman in Sydney. She's 97 years of age. She <laughs> still lives on her own, does her own shopping, her own cooking. And she was being interviewed and she really put it down to her, her strength habit. Wow. And there's a there's a saying I use, be stronger to live longer. But really, it's a blind spot for so many of us. It is, yeah. Because we kind of equate strength training with the rugby players or the the people that are really into the gym. Uh, but actually, from our 40s onwards, Brendan, we are losing lean muscle mass, maybe 7 to 10% each decade. I, I've heard this before, terrifying. And Go that on. can weaken your bones as well, which is really important for women, particularly uh, when they get into their 50s and so on. So, you know, uh, being stronger... Uh, you know, strengthens your bones, reverses that muscle loss you can get. So that builds your posture, your balance, boosts your metabolism. It's a great way to support more positive mental health and recharge from stress. There's so many benefits to so, it. Uh, movement's important. Community's important. Just just uh, on community, somebody just sent in a quite positive text. All my relationships seem to die off post-COVID. I think there's a, there was a general clearing of relationships, wasn't there, post-COVID? Mm. I, I've heard this a lot as well. I've joined volunteer groups and even though I didn't expect deep friendships, it keeps my brain fresh to have different conversations. That's a great idea, isn't it? Volunteering is massive yeah. and... It's incredible that the well-being benefits in volunteering are immense because you're giving of yourself and, and, and kindness and in its most wide application, giving in terms of volunteering. It's a wonderful way to help others build relationships, build community. And it's a great way for you to build your sense of connection. And have, have a common purpose together. Yeah. A common purpose is massive. I mean, in the blue zones, Brendan, you know, having a strong sense of purpose in, um, in, in Japan, in Okinawa, they have a term called ikigai. And ikigai is that sense of inner purpose, knowing that who you are and what you do matters, that you're making a difference. 
Just on community here again. Brendan, I live in Coolgreeny, Wexford, the most gorgeous village. There's so much social activity in this little beautiful place and old and young mix. As your guest says, it's really about pulling the community together. Eleanor, thank you. I agree. I've noticed a trend as well post-COVID. Full disclosure, I'm moving to Wicklow. <laughs> I, I'm moving okay. to the town to my sister, to be near my sister. Lovely. Eventually, hopefully, mm. if it all works out. But cities sort of, I, I, I've saw people, young families popping up in little towns where community is easier to access. So I think we're, there's an awareness about the importance of community as we age, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. And I think what's happening is that life has become very busy. Yeah. And people are becoming very stressed and they're rushing and racing to try and stay still. And I think COVID was a reset. COVID has given people an opportunity to pause and to think about really what matters and how do I want to be in my own life going forward? How do I want to be in my own space? And again, getting back to nature, that's one of the wonderful things so that get, forest therapy can do is that it can really brilliant, give you a beautiful segue for me because I've never done it. I, I don't think I've done it. But you're talking about getting back to nature, forest therapy and forest bathing. Now, I'm going to ask the question I think most people want to know. Do you get into a bath in the forest? No. No, okay. No. So, what, what, it's what? a Japanese term called uh, Shinrin-yoku. Um, which is Japanese for, for it's actually Japanese for forest bath, but it's bathing in the in the sense of bathing your senses, yeah, your sight, your 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 sound, your your sense of smell, your sense of texture. So it's just being there, being fully present. As I say, disconnecting from the busyness of everyday life to reconnect with the essence of who you are. There's a term in Japan called karoshi, Brendan, which yes. which really means death from overwork. Really? And the Japanese are legendary at it. So this brilliant doctor, King Lee, he took these Japanese businessmen off into the woods and he noticed they felt better. So then he went a step further. He measured their cortisol levels. That's a stress hormone, their blood pressure before and after. And he found cortisol levels went down 12%. Blood pressure went down and feelings of vigour and vitality went up. So simply getting into nature. Simply getting into nature. I mean, that's something we can all do pretty much. Hopefully. It's such an incredibly simple idea and the best ideas probably are the simplest. And it's really this idea that the environments we spend our time in are important and really they can all be health enhancing or health depleting. And one of the most amazing environments to spend some time in is nature. Yeah. Because you've got all the sounds of birdsong, uh, the wind rustling through the leaves. You've got the sights. They call it these fractal patterns, these asymmetrical designs on, on clouds and on leaves and on tree branches. And the back of our eye, which is called the retina, is hardwired to pick up on these fractal patterns. And it de- denotes safety. Wow. Calm. It dampens the stress response. And then you start inhaling all these fighting so sights. I take the dog up to the Phoenix Park all the time. I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm here for you. Give me your top three tips for clearing your head when you're out in nature and, and engaging property and forest bathing. If, if something someone could do today. Oh, I would say, um, well, firstly, be fully present. Turn off your phone or at least put it on silent. Um, set a little intention um, as, as you go into as you go into nature. Uh, a little reminder of who you are, uh, how far you've come in your life, um, that you're still here and and breathe. You know, breathing is such a powerful idea, such a simple tool to just inhale slowly and steadily, deeply through the through your nose, expand out your lungs, take a tiny pause and exhale out. And as you're exhaling out, Brendan, breathe out any tension or any stress or any feelings of irritability. 
And then I would say, become the noticer of what you notice. Notice what's around you. Notice what you're hearing. Notice what you're seeing. Notice what you're smelling. Mm-hmm. And at the end, uh, a little gratitude practice. Just to say thank you. A lovely, and speaking of thank you, hi Brendan, it's wonderful to hear that GP speaking about maintaining good health naturally instead of a pill for every ill. Thanks, Moira. Dr. Mark Rowe, your voice is divine. I could listen to you all day. Thank you so Uh, much. Restival Festival is on in Congreve Gardens, County Waterford from the 19th to the 20th of August and tickets are available at congregardens.ie. And Brendan, that weekend may or may not suit you, but if you'd ever like to come down and do a a forest therapy experience, I'd be delighted to bring you around and let you experience it for yourself. I have a vision of you walking into the forest saying, no Brendan, put your clothes on. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, it was wonderful to chat to you. Thank you so much. Thanks a a million. Have a great Restival Festival. Now, my guest this morning has performed at Carnegie Hall and his album has reached number one on the American Billboard charts. Yet many Irish people may not have heard of him. Well, let's change that. But first, here's a clip of him in action. And the world will be better for this That one man scorned and covered with scars Stop you in your tracks, won't it? Good morning, Emmett Cahill. Good morning, Brendan. How Good are to you? see you. How are you? I'm great. This is my little trick now. Before I meet guests, I go on Instagram and uh, follow them. Right. So I found out everything about you all of a sudden. Yes. Yeah, because so I know nothing about you. Well, let's change that this <laughs> let's morning. Let's change Thanks that for this morning. Me. Yeah. So uh, many well-known Irish singers and musicians become household names at home mm. before international success. You've chosen another way. I've kind of done things in reverse, yeah. Um, I ended up going to the States back in 2011 with a show called Celtic Thunder, which I'm sure many people have heard of. Yeah. And um, we've performed all over the States, Canada, Australia, bringing Irish music to people all over the world, both Irish and just music lovers in general. And um, that was kind of the start for me. Yeah, I did one year in college, got the opportunity to tour. And I mean, I wasn't going to turn that down. So so is, is music in your background? Did you always want to be a singer? Was that always there for you? Um, I mean, I didn't necessarily always dream of being a singer. It was always part of daily life. My my dad is a piano teacher okay. and a church organist. My mom was a singer in church. So we were brought up both with classical music and sacred music. And of course, Irish as well. Oh, yeah. Um, it was a huge part of our just daily life. It was like music was the same as school, football, all the other things that were going on in life. So I never sort of maybe dreamed of being on stages and touring it kind of like all great things in life it kind of happened almost by accident and and one thing led to the next you're, you know? you're being modest as well because you're very very <laughs> very talented and uh, I actually sidebar I, I stumbled across your rendition of Holy um, the, the, you sang a Christmas song Oscar with a, a girl on your Instagram was a holy night oh, oh, oh. Um, silent night silent night yes oh my it's just gorgeous anyway <laughs> he, he, Emmett Cahill tenor is, he's on his Instagram you love it but okay so you said you did one year in college and then you dropped out yeah and you, you headed off to America how did you end up in America so I got into a show called Celtic yes, Thunder yeah, as yeah, mentioned yeah. so I ended up did going there did you get that there. here or there I auditioned here ah, the, the, they had done a couple of tours in the States and um, they were looking for a tenor to join the show I Got it, the audition totally last minute, um, got accepted and then had a decision to make. Was it going to stay in college or was it going to go? And I think opportunities like that don't often come around. So I said I'd go for it. And 
here I am 12 years later. You 12 know? years, oh, yeah, yeah. that's funny we say it like that. So we have a clip of you singing Bring Him Home. Let's have a listen to this. That's a throwback, Ben. I it's haven't heard that recording in a long time. I think I'm like 20 there. Really? Uh, yeah, because when I auditioned for Celtic Thunder, I think it was probably that song that got me into the show, to be honest. Like the first audition I did went terribly. Like, <laughs> you know the way when I, you, you go, go into an audition, I was like, okay, try something else. We sing something else, etc. And I think when I sang that, then they saw something in me. And um, so, yeah, that's that's a real throwback for me right there, that that song it's kind of been a, it's been a huge part of my life the very first time I was, I was on stage was in a production of Les Mis really? in Mullingar back in 2004 so that song has kind of followed me my whole life and I still perform it to this day you know do you love it? I love it yeah and you know I love musical theatre um, I think this the music has so much depth to it so much yeah. humanity to it and a song like Bring Him Home as I said has, has followed me my whole life and, and people love it I mean it's been you know, good to you. It was made famous by an Irish man, by Colin Wilkinson, of course. Yeah. So, um, yeah. It's been good to you. What, do you have a favourite song you like singing? Uh, I The Irish songs probably obviously speak to me more in that, you know, I've grown up with the music and when I tour in America, you know, they resonate so much in the States, you know, so songs like The Parting Glass, oh. Danny Boy, these songs are, you know, there's, uh, it's interesting being in America, like there's 40 million people with Irish ancestry and the songs, they know them almost better than we do and they connect them more because I think it gives them that real sense of identity and, you know, they think of maybe their parents or their grandparents or, you know, even further back who emigrated. I think it connects them uh, to their lineage and to their history, so like music is an amazing way of doing that. Actually, it um it sometimes expresses uh, what words can't, and you know a lot of the Irish songs have that humanity, have that backstory to them that we can all connect with. So that's been my experience of it. We were actually talking about that. The, the cabin crew wrote a great little. This woman who works on airline wrote a great piece about your her accent and how people perceive it when she's abroad. Yeah, and I, I, you're right. There's something something elevates your pride and home when you're mm. abroad doesn't it do you find that yeah you're you're i mean for me because in many ways i carry so much of ireland with me and that through the music right so i'm telling the stories and particularly what in america you know it's a country of people from all over the world and i think when you point that out to people you know singing songs about emigration like there's a song i sing that was written by brennan graham called isle of hope isle of tears and tells the story of annie moore who came to ellis island and was was the first irish emigrant to pass through and her journey from getting on a, on a, on a boat in cove and cork getting to new york and starting her life was the story of millions of americans and i think when you take a song and point out to people that it's actually their story. Like it goes beyond the sort of the superficial level of, oh, that's a lovely song. Or, I, you know, we think about what music does for us, right? It can put us in good moods, mellow moods, whatever we want. You can go on your phone, you can pick a song, go to a gig with your friends. But for me, music goes way beyond that. And I think sometimes when you point an audience in that direction, um, I, I think they're surprised as to the impact it can have. And particularly for me, I suppose I sing 
songs that maybe were written many years ago, you know, and creating nostalgia is also a very powerful thing I've, I've observed as well from from singing some of these older songs, both the Irish songs and, you know, older classic sort of golden age of Hollywood songs as well. When I do the Broadway stuff, uh, I think you really see the impact on audiences. And it's it's very satisfying from my point of view to see it instantaneously, you know, when you're up on stage. And like I, I've observed like a song like Danny Boy, for example, I'll be up there singing it and you're sitting there and you're smiling up at me and the person beside you is the tears run down their face. Wow. Now, you're at the same gig, <laughs> but you're having completely different experiences. Yeah. So it's the music. Like the music is the conduit between ourselves and our memories, our experiences. And it can bring that out and almost catch people off guard. I think in a weird way, people kind of enjoy that, whether that's oh, a smile absolutely. or a cry. It's very powerful. I, I think when when you touch someone's heart with the song and they can listen to it back and back again, mm. they become your fan because you've you've emotionally connected with them, even though yeah. they've never met you. So you've you've a big fan base in America. Yeah, it's <laughs> been make- it's been an interesting journey, and one of the most interesting things for me has been actually what I've kind of experienced off stage from talking to people after concerts. Like you know, people come along, they enjoy the show, whether they have Irish ancestry, but as I mentioned, what the song does for them, like people will come up and say, you know, my mother used to sing that song to me. You know, I lost her many years ago. You brought her back to me tonight. Or I had a, a, an elderly couple recently come up to me after a concert and I sang Moon River, oh. you know, that beautiful Golden Age song. And they said, you know, that was the, that was the song for our first dance at our wedding. Oh. And we were immediately brought back to that moment. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's a, it's a very interesting thing like that music, if, if you frame it in the right way for, for audiences, say when you're teeing up a song and make them realise there's more to this, they, they kind of take a little bit of ownership on it then and they're very interested They follow every word. Yeah, and you, you have, like as I said, I, I, I had a good dive onto your uh, Instagram and it, <laughs> the comparison I'll make, and this is, is a weird one, but you'll mm. like, I think you'll like it. Uh, it's beautifully effortless for you when you sing but there's a real connection there. And the only other artist I would say I've seen do that live was Beyonce. It just flows out of her. It just comes out of her. And I was watching you saying, I was like, that is so, like, obviously there's a lot of work and prep going into it, Mm. but you're just such a, it's so natural to you, isn't it? Well, I think, People, is it the connection with the song though that I'm wondering now while you explain it? It is the connection with the song. Like for me, I'll never include a song in a show that I don't feel like I have a personal connection to either. Like if it's an Irish song, that's a very natural fit, right? Because I grew up in Ireland. It's a huge part of who you are, who I am. But beyond that, I think you the most important thing for a singer or for an artist is honesty and integrity. And you need to believe every word because if I'm up there singing and I don't believe every word, how are you supposed to believe me, right? Like people can spot an actor a mile away. So there has to be a genuineness there. And, And again, when you then, as I said, frame that to an audience, give them something to think about, they're with you for every word. And and that can, you know, you have the experiences of one person is smiling, one person is crying, but people are then, they realise that you're you're honest, you're the real deal and they'll follow you. Like I've had people that have been following me from the very start of my career and they come back every year, they bring, you know, like, and for years they may have brought parents or loved ones and then, even when they maybe have passed on, they come back for them. Like I had that situation recently where someone had just lost this lady and her, and her sister had had tickets for my show and the sister had passed literally a couple of weeks previous and she came to the concert and she came up to me and she said, I needed this tonight. So like when I'm up on stage, okay, I'm doing my thing, but with music, like you've no idea the impact it 
can have in the room. Now, you can't get up. It can't be contrived. You can't get up and say, I'm going to make you feel happy or sad or whatever. I think you have to put put it out there. And then people actually, whilst they're all at the same concert, they're all having their own personal experience. So I, I think that's what's sort of magic about music. It goes way beyond, oh, I like that song or that was a great night out. There's something much more powerful there and I think if if people when they go to a concert you know nowadays <laughs> if you can sort of ignore the phone you know get you know plug out for a while and just sit and be present I think they will actually get a lot more out of it if they if they allow themselves to do it you know Do you feel how do you feel when somebody tells you a story like that my, my sister's passed away and I needed yeah. this tonight What? how do you feel? Um, I in a strange way, I suppose it's it's a compliment in of that course, yeah. you really made them feel something. And people often ask me about, you know, do you feel pressure, you know, when you get up mm. on stage, you know, you have to entertain them tonight. And I don't so much feel pressure as when I hear stories like that, I do kind of feel a responsibility because, as I said, you know, you have an audience there and they've all walked into the door that evening with completely different experiences. When they all leave, they'll go back to their lives again. So for that, let's say hour and a half, they're there with you. And if you can give them, if you can take them on a journey and by the end of it, they feel that they've really felt and experienced something, both happy and sad. Like I always joke and say, you know, people ask me, what do you, what do you want? What do you want an audience to get from your concert? And mm. I say, if I can make you smile, they can make you cry. I've done my job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of a strange thing. Yeah. But, it is about, like, it's not so much just about the music and the words. It's about the human stories behind it. And if you can find something personal in it, and if I can bring that across, then it's very powerful. Now, a lot of the music I sing is is older music, right? Both the older Irish stuff that really resonates in America. But, you know, nostalgia is a very powerful thing. And I think as people progress through life, like, I'm 32, but I've even found that in the last couple of years, you know, nostalgia Very wise music, head on your shoulders, though. You really do. <laughs> I don't know if, if my mother and Mullingar would agree with that. <laughs> but, um, but we do crave that. Yeah. Um, because I, I think it grounds us. And as I said, nowadays we're so, I think, overstimulated between social media and phones and screens and everyone wants your attention and there seems to always be an agenda. But I think music doesn't have an agenda because, I mean, the way I see it is you put it out there and whatever way you want to feel about the song, that's personal to you. Mm -hmm. So it can be a very powerful thing and... I think there's no problem in speaking about that to audiences. Mm -hmm. You put them there and they're going to have this experience. And 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 I, and as I said, I think that's why people maybe have come back to see me again and again, because they kind of say to me, the same guy that's sitting in front of you now is the same guy up on the stage. I think you have to be genuine about it. And all the great artists that people have admired over the years, from the Beyonce's to the Frank Sinatra's to the Julie Garland's going right back. We love them because they were real. Yeah. We believed every word they sang. Yeah. Um, so for me, that's the most important thing about being an artist. So sitting in front of me is this very wise, humble <laughs> Mullingar boy. But really, you'd be number one Billboard charts in America and sold out tours all over all over the States. Like, yeah. what's that? What's your life like in America? It's been an incredible journey. Like, it's not something I ever... The way I said that. What's like, like in America? How, how are you getting on in America? <laughs> Do we have Coca-Cola? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, it's it's been an amazing experience. Mm. You know, I've I've sung in forty nine states. Wow. Um, you know, I've been to the states or to Canada and Australia, and you know, I I think 
I've I've kind of grown up on the road. Like at first, I was twenty. But like I had done one year in college. Like it was only a young fella really going young, out, really. You? Yeah. you know. And so I've kind of feel like I've I've grown up and learned so much <laughs> out there. Like my education has kind of been in the public eye. Like it's been out there on stage. Things go right, things go wrong, and, and you learn from that. But it's been the people I've met and and the stories I've heard. Like they, I'm still talking about them today because they've had an impact on me, and they they make me. I get a sense you feel quite privileged by those stories. Yeah, to, I do to be, have them yeah. because like, it's so rare. Like that, like these people come up to me after concerts and they've never met me before. We'll say, and they're willing to share this stuff with me. And and I often think that's when I go back to it's it's something about the music that, like, um. I think it was Hans Christian Andersen said, like, where, where words fail, music speaks. Mm. And, you know, people are willing to share stuff like that. It's a very rare thing. I don't know if there's any other. I think art in general puts us into that kind of um, mind frame of, you know, maybe being more open and more expressive. And uh, yeah, as I said, you know, it, it, I think pr- you're right. I think privilege is the right word. And um, I'm always open to listening to people's stories. And there's something I can then take from it, you see, as well, and bring it into the next performance. You mentioned that uh, somebody sitting in front of you could be singing Danny Boy and somebody's smiling and somebody's crying. Yeah. My brother's name is Daniel. Right. <laughs> and that song can get me when I'm away yeah. as well. Let's have a little clip of you singing Danny Boy. I literally have I've got goosebumps uh, where was that recording? that was actually very recently it was about a month ago out in Salt Lake City in Utah with um, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir who are probably one of the world's most famous choirs it was about 400 of them in there we sang at Temple Square um, now that was their Sunday morning music and spoken word there was about 20,000 people there <laughs> and they they invited me to come and sing with them and said we want you to sing an Irish song I said I, ha- I have a few in my pocket <laughs> But and um, that was actually an original arrangement of of Danny Boy that they let me put together and yeah I mean doing that like having grown up in Ireland like being thousands of miles from home and singing an Irish song you know on that scale yeah like definitely like th- that was definitely one of those moments. kind of pinch me moments yeah because it was. And it connects you to home straight away. Like I never feel too far from home because I'm singing these Irish songs and and people just, even if they're not Irish, they just gravitate towards it. There's something very inclusive about it because all the stories are so relatable. They're human stories that people from any background can relate to. And um, as I said, it goes way beyond just the music and the words. Like it is personal. You spoke about, you know, your your brother, Danny, you hear the song. Immediately, it's not the song; it's you and your relationship with him, and your yeah. your family and stuff like that. Yeah, so it's, it's amazing. Do you, do you ever get moved to tears on stage? I've been caught off guard a couple of times. Have you? Yeah, I have. Yeah, oh. and uh, you know, <laughs> tears all the time. As, as an cheeks. Irish person, you're kind of half embarrassed, but also <laughs> half, you know. But I think when you go on stage, you have to just let the, I suppose, 
let it all out there. It's like that the emotions wave yeah, over you. Yeah, yeah, because then it's it's real. Like a song. I think it was when I sing the part in glass. I, I think of a of a friend, you know that that I lost years ago, and 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 immediately then, like I'm that person. <laughs> I'm that <laughs> suddenly Moved. whilst I still have to sing the song, but but people still come up to me and say, "Do you remember the night?" You know, you you wow. you did come to tears yourself, and <laughs> people. The reason they talk about it because it's so real, you know. Yeah. So interesting. I, how was Carnegie Hall? When did that happen? I mean, that was back in 2018, Paddy's Day, 2018. Um, I got the chance to do a concert at Carnegie Hall with the orchestra, and wow, yeah, that was a uh, that was then also one of those just moments. I I um. I never imagined what happened, but in a in a really strange way, like people ask, were you nervous about it? And I, I, it's probably the least nervous I've ever been really? for a gig in my life. And I think That's the amazing. reason I love that because yeah. you're just so excited to be there. Yeah, but I, I I think there was so many small steps along the way that and other musicians, even like athletes, talk about this when they get to the big game, the big moment. They've had all the little steps along the way, so they're not nervous. They know who they are they know what they have to do so actually if you can go out and enjoy it wow. you know it's just so much more satisfying like I, I, I've been more nervous about gigs in Mullingar than I was for Carnegie Hall because you can see the whites of their eyes and you know them yeah, yeah well there's that as well yeah. there's that as well but yeah no that was a wonderful moment and my folks came out from Ireland um, and my brother and sister actually as well so oh. you know they'd be singing these Irish songs in New York in you know, Carnegie Hall in Carnegie and your family Hall, there all that yeah Absolutely great much. there's loads of texts coming in about you uh, yeah you're, you're now you've established yourself in Ireland now well done <laughs> hi Brendan can you ask your man where he lives learned to sing thanks Shay uh, at home at with home. my dad and my mom. so it uh, was music from your dad yeah dad had us playing piano um, since I was about three or four years of age my mom often tells me like she has photos of home of us sitting on the piano stool and like the little legs would be swinging <laughs> you know yeah. they wouldn't be able to touch the floor but dad would be t- teaching us how to play the piano so it was always music in the house and um, still is to this day. So lots more texts in. Have, uh, what a wonderful interview, Brendan. Uh, such a humble and incredibly wise guy, Phil in Rathfarn. Thanks, Phil. And then there's two. I'm going to I'm going to read two back to back because then you can answer the question. Brendan, what a lovely interview with Emma. What a gorgeous person. What an amazing voice. Uh, where can we hear him singing in Ireland? You can answer that in one second from uh, Trassa in Dublin. And then, hi, Brendan, I'm from Mullingar and I've seen Emmett perform a few times. He's wonderful. His penis is also fabulous too. Best of luck, Emmett, for his performance in the cathedral tonight. Yes. Maria, so tell me more. So, being from Mullingar, um, if people, any Irish music fans out there will know Flakyol Naheran is happening in Mullingar this year. Uh, listen, if you woke up on Monday morning in Ireland, everybody knows Flakyol Naheran is in Mullingar yes, this year. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, I'm on tonight in Mullingar Cathedral and actually, um, I, I believe we have... Um, Former President Mary McAleese coming down to the concert, wow. which will be a great honour. How exciting. And, um, so great for the flat to be back to Mullingar. And moreover then, on September 6th, I'm Important. in the National Concert Hall um, for the sounds of Rogers and Hammerstein. So with, with the RT Concert Orchestra, Brilliant. Uh, Niall Kinsella conducting, we have the incredible Celine Byrne, of course, our opera star, and Anna, Anna Jane Murphy, who has been a star in the West End for years. And, you know, if any fans of Golden Age of Hollywood, of, you know, old Broadway music from The Sound of Music, Oklahoma, South Pacific, Carousel, you know, songs like You'll Never Walk Alone. This is this is a night for you guys. So very uh, excited. And have you have you performed in the, in the National Concert Hall before? 
Now this will make you laugh. It's my fir- it's my first time singing at the National Concert Hall in Dublin. And congratulations! So I, I had to wait. I had to wait years for my. Dublin it's a crack America first, <laughs> and then come home. That's how we roll in Ireland. So and people can find out all the information they need to know about that at, at the National Concert Hall's website, I presume. Yes, nch.ie, and it's also up there on my website as well. And just so. say the date again, just so we don't leave anybody behind. September sixth. So, so, so plenty of time to get tickets. Plenty of time. Quick. Lovely message here. What a wonderful talent and a genuinely down to earth young man. I second that every success in the future and I look forward to seeing him in the concert Emmett, Fantastic! it's absolutely wonderful to talk to you many many I can't wait to meet you again you're a very wise and interesting young man and I've really enjoyed that thank you so much My and best pleasure, of luck have, enjoy the fly thanks a million we will do